Welcome to the South Fellowship Podcast. Here at South Fellowship, we exist to help people live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. And wherever you're listening from today, we hope you're encouraged by this week's message. Good morning, friends. How you doing? If you're visiting, my, thank you, Mike. I love that. Thank you. Everyone else, good morning, friends. How you doing? My name's Alex. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're visiting, it's great to have you here. We're going to jump into this series. And, and that video starts a little heavy, right? It's got that feeling of, wow, yes, this is some of the things that I'm noticing in the world around us. But, but before we get there, it's, it's just great to be back with you after a week vacation. And I have to show off uh, just, just some of the things that just we were doing. This is just us on the lake up in Minnesota, just hanging out in this beautiful sky. And we drove 17 hours to get to very northern Minnesota. And, and, and we had a car top like box to get everything in and about halfway up at 76 this lid just blows off the top of this thing and 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 I'm watching as stuff like you know starting to trail behind us we're leaving some stuff on the highway we're littering uh, and you might say like what did you lose fortunately not that much I lost one tennis shoe which was more annoying than losing both if I'm honest now I'm like do I drive back and look for it I, if it's two I just have to replace them and I lost a couple of books and it may suggest to you that I have too many books when I say I'm still trying to figure out which books they were. I'm not entirely sure, but one of them was definitely Henry Nouwen's Flying, Falling, Catching, which is delightfully ironic, right? It flew, it fell, nobody caught it, uh, and it's now somewhere on a highway if you're looking for a copy copy up on on 76. But we had a great time, and now we're back uh, to talk about this series crisis, but really more than a series, really a series of series. Within this thing, this church calendar, this seasonal flow of what it is to do life in church, there are these different elements. Uh, We begin with Advent. There's this moment before Christmas, and that builds up through Lent up until this moment at Easter where we recognize Jesus' redemption for us, and and then finally this moment at Pentecost where we recognize God living within us. That's the the, the Christian story that you are not just making this happen. God lives within you and he is working through you and in you to make you the person that God wants you to be, the person that he wants me to be. And then there's this space that we call ordinary time. And what I I love about ordinary time is it gives us this space to, to ask a few questions that maybe don't fit into the rest of the season. We get to ask, I would suggest, why are we here? Why are we as a community here? Yes, we are the church worldwide. We're just part of this bigger thing. And and you see that thing on our wall when you walk in, our mission statement, living in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. What I would suggest is almost any church should be able to say that. That's just how we phrase it. But any church should be able to say we live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. But, But my question is, why are we here? Because I would suggest that somewhere church is is both global and local. And it's always, and it's now, for some reason, God placed you and I in this cultural moment, in this spatial location. We are here for a specific reason. And I long, I don't know about you, I long to be part of a church that knows why it is here and knows why it is impacting the community around it. I would love at some point, if, if we were to call City Hall, I don't know who picks up the, the, the phone at City Hall, is it like Commissioner Gordon or something like that, like Batman style? And, and, and I would love if we were hypothetically to say to them, do you know what we decided? We, we just kind of got fed up of doing this thing. We're just stopping now. I would love it if, if City Hall put down the phone and said, oh man, 
We've got a whole bunch of stuff to figure out now because that church actually makes an impact in its area. It knows why it's, it's there to help with what's going on. Maybe they would never say, we're going to miss that they're living in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. Maybe they wouldn't get that far, but I would love it if they said, no, this, this is a church that makes a difference, that sees lives transformed, that actually has a sense of purpose and calling. But what I would suggest is how do you know what that is in this moment, in this place, if you don't really know what's going on around you? Perhaps there's this tendency in church to kind of, we, we, we put up the walls and we, we know what's going on in here, but, but all we have outside is just the sense of suspicion and bad feeling of it feels bad out there. And that's maybe what I mean by crisis. Maybe some of us would say we look around and we're like, I just... I don't know, I don't like what I'm hearing, I don't like what I'm seeing, I don't like what I'm feeling. For us to know why we are here, we need to know why Jesus created the church in general, and, and we need to know what this current cultural moment is. So over these next three series, we're going to spend a few weeks just asking that, what, what, is, what is the crisis? What is the problem? Now, if you're like me, you grew up in evangelical, you might say, well, I want to tell people that the problem is sin and the answer is Jesus. And yes, I'll go with you on that. But what I suspect is that there might be some other felt needs that people in the area have that they would love to know that we had some answers to before they believe us about that Jesus story, before they believe that that maybe is the thing that makes a difference. So we get to look at this bigger crisis, and then we get to see how these first churches took Jesus' answers to some of those things, some of those sociological issues, and how they shaped themselves. We're going to spend some time in this letter to this church in Corinth looking at how these first followers unpack. This is like church one. This is Paul's first letter to any kind of church, and he unpacks all of the ways that he expects them to live, how he expects them to play, if you like, the notes of Jesus in the world around them. And then you and I get to ask, what does South do? What is our calling? Why are we here? Because the beauty there is, is when we all row together, when we all know why we're doing specific things, we just get that beautiful synergy that actually makes a difference in the world around us. I don't just want to do church with you people, even though I like you. You know, I'm, I'm on board. I, I, you're wonderful people, but, but I want us to make a difference in the world around us. I want to see Jesus use us to transform Littleton. What is it to be the church of Jesus for Littleton and the areas around it today in this place and in this time? The comedian John Mulaney at the start of his uh, Comeback Kid tour in 2019 talks about this idea. He says, I, I don't know if you've followed the news, but it seems like everyone everywhere is super mad about everything all of the time. I, I try to stay upbeat, but things are looking grim. And then he goes to unpack all of the humorous ways he sees the world operating. But I think he, he observes attention. This feeling that perhaps we have of like, I'm, I'm just not sure where everything is going. I have a bunch of questions. I don't like what I'm feeling out there. And yet at the same time, what I hear from people over and over again is, I also don't know what to do about that. Other than that big, broad answer of, yes, the answer, the problem is sin, the answer is Jesus. I'm just not sure why what I do in that matters or how I can impact it at all. Someone once said to me, I feel like I can fix so many of the things in the world. It's just nobody is listening to me. 
Don't you feel like that at times? Have you ever done that thing online where someone posts something and maybe you passionately agree or you passionately disagree and then you look at the 457 comments that have already been made and you say, what's the point? I'm just going to get lost in the noise. Maybe you like it and you click like or even love, but you just wonder whether that's really making that much of a difference. There's this crisis, this felt thing but also maybe just some frustration with I'm not sure what I am supposed to do. Maybe it's a lifestyle thing. Maybe we look at the world and just have a bunch of questions. The writer Eugene Peterson says, the puzzle is why so many people live so badly. Not so wickedly, not so in, but so inanely. Not so cruelly, but so stupidly. There is little to admire and less to imitate in the people who are prominent. His language is almost, I'm looking for heroes and I see nothing in the world around me. I'm just, I'm just frustrated. Now, let me say this. We are not talking about crisis because I am turning 40 tomorrow and going through a midlife crisis of some kind. I am turning 40 tomorrow, which is, is shocking. It's just gone quicker than I expected it to, but this isn't like a midlife crisis thing. I, I don't think I'm going through a midlife crisis. But I wonder if midlife crisis is something that you ever know that you're going through. Maybe it's something everybody else knows that you're going through. Maybe it's like the psychological version of like spinach in your teeth after a meal. Everybody else knows it's there, but you don't know it's there. And everyone's too kind to tell you. And then I got suspicious the other day that I, I went into a store and somehow I came out with these, um, which I've never worn basketball shoes. Never wanted to play basketball ever, and yet I'm not sure how they ended up in my hand and in the car driving home. They just did. Maybe there's something going on in the back of my mind that's a little bit weird psychologically. Maybe soon I'll be online shopping for open-top cars for bargain basement prices or something like that, and, and I just feel like maybe there's some, some girls in the room nudging guys saying, I told you you were too old for that car, uh, and some guys saying, see, I've got to buy it before Alex buys it. It's going to be gone soon. It's, uh, this is my moment to shine. I'm not going through a a midlife crisis and for some of you you're like oh, I don't think 40 is midlife anyway I want to claim 65 as midlife if I can but, but midlife crisis is a one of the ways that we talk about crisis it's a humorous way often that we talk about crisis and yet underneath the surface of that the crisis itself is not the thing there's usually something else driving it, some other struggle, some other problem. And yet, even though it's funny, sometimes the consequences of it, wow, aren't they profound? For every, for every marriage that ends because of a midlife affair, there's, there's a whole bunch of other stuff that has to be worked out from that. From every crazy purchase of a ridiculous car, there's budget that doesn't go somewhere else. There's a whole bunch of things that can come from something that we find kind of funny. And if you're in a midlife crisis, that's not meant to make you feel bad. It's just to observe that the thing itself isn't the root and it's not even the ultimate cause. It's just this thing that almost just happens. If you search the news, you can find this idea of crisis everywhere. There's the picture of the language around climate crisis. There's language around global mental health crisis. Now more than ever, more people are struggling with their mental health and it's still the one sickness that we actually demonize to a level. It's still something that we blame the person for. You don't blame someone for getting cancer, but sometimes we blame people for having a mental health issue. It's something that we're dealing with more and more. 
in different sociological needs. There's the social media identity crisis. This question we'll look at at, at some point in this series of who am I anyway? And, and people asking that question more than ever. And then social media as a crisis in itself, the way that it turns us against each other, the sort of society that it creates can be termed a crisis. We're using language around the cost of living crisis. In America, we're talking about inflation rates going up, people having less and less to spend. And that doesn't even get us started on things that have lurked around for years. One billion people on this planet don't have enough to eat. 700 million people don't have enough water to drink. And we think about this world and we might say, yes, crisis is what I would define it as. What we aren't talking about here is the feeling that we can get of just life was better when we were kids. Because that's a real thing. The writer Mary Schmidt says this, except certain and inalienable truths, prices will rise, politicians will philander, you too will get old. And when you do, you'll fantasize that when you were young, prices were reasonable, politicians were noble, and children respected their elders. Respect your elders. And don't mess too much with your hair, or by the time you're 40, it will look 85. Yes, I didn't do it. I didn't mess with my hair. And now it's not looking like I'm 85, I hope. Maybe my midlife crisis, I'll just shave it off or something like that. We're not, we're not talking about just complaining about the world not feeling like it did in the 70s. We're talking about what is the angst that we feel, and what is Jesus' conversation around it. The writer Kyra Powell suggests all of the things that we see, all of the struggles that we see sociologically can be split into three categories. She would suggest they split into questions around identity, questions around belonging, and questions around purpose. Under the umbrella of sin and all of the disruption that it causes, those are three things that we wrestle with in different ways. Maybe you phrase them as questions. Who am I? Where do I fit? And does my life matter? If you're unsure that these things matter, I would suggest these questions are inherent in some of the earliest stories of Scripture. In Genesis, this first book, we have these 11 chapters that could be defined as prehistory. It's before people were writing. They're stories that have been passed down just by word of mouth. Now, now I would call them myths. Now, now, myth can be a trigger word for evangelical Christians. What does myth mean? To some of us, myth means not true, and, and that's not actually what myth means at all. Myth means that history isn't its main purpose. A myth is sometimes absolutely historically true. Sometimes it's not historically true, but it's always, always spiritually true. It, it always teaches you something about you and teaches me something about me. And, and an early story is around Cain, the first murderer that we come across in Scripture and his interaction with God. And as God tells him what will happen to him, we're told Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land and I will what? I will first be hidden from your presence. It's identity. It's who am I? I will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Where do I belong? And it's and whoever finds me will kill me. What's the point in living? My life is almost over. He's wrestling with similar questions that you and I might wrestle with in different ways, even back there. And, and this is what we're told. But the Lord said to him, not so anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and he lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. He lived in this place away from God's presence, separate 
different. He lived with no identity, no sense of belonging, no sense of purpose. And I would suggest you and I often were people that live east of Eden. People that don't know the answers to some of those questions. And I would suggest that we live in a world of people who are asking all of those questions. Who am I? Where do I fit? Why does my life even matter? What's my identity? What's my belonging? What's my purpose? Underneath so many of those different things that we see as crisis, there is something else. Under, behind every shooting, there is something that has happened to a person that has warped them deeply from God's image. In everything that we see in the news, there is some brokenness, some questioning. That doesn't mean that we have to excuse the thing, but we have to recognize that the thing itself might not be the problem. Who am I? Where do I fit? Does my life matter? We are people often living east of Eden, uncertain of who we are, where we fit, and why our lives matter. And yet, Jesus said this. Jesus said, I have come that they have life and life to the full. That expression is one that creates a beautiful picture of what life can be, of a life that lives within all of the answers to those questions, a life that deals with sin and finds redemption and relationship with God and comes with answers to those existential struggles. That was his promise for us. And yet perhaps part of our sense of crisis is this. I suspect that the world no longer looks to us who follow Jesus for answers to some of those big questions. And I would suggest that somewhere there is a suspicion that we are as confused and lost as they often feel. I don't know that we appear to them to be any different when our churches suffer from the same social problems that they do, when we experience brokenness in just the same levels as they do. This is a, a quote from our Indian philosopher, Bharadada. It's a, a quote often attributed to Mahatma Gandhi, maybe just because he's more famous and it catches better when you say Gandhi said it. He probably didn't, but some stories, it's too, they're too good to let the truth get in the way. But th this was the guy that actually said it. Jesus is ideal and wonderful, but you Christians are not like him. But you Christians are not like him. Is that not something that you felt at different points? I've looked at the church, looked at myself and said, I, I don't know that if I, re I reflect Jesus well. I don't know if I play his notes in the world well. Brad Powell, the author and writer, said this, I, I believe the church is the hope of the world when it's working right. And therein lies the problem. Most churches aren't. We long to speak into these existential problems, and yet the, 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 the feeling outside is that, do you guys even have answers? Yes, you might talk about sin and redemption and all of those big things, but do you even have answers to these basic struggles of identity, belonging, of purpose? And perhaps that's where the church gets lost. It loses the fact that Jesus did speak into those things confidently and bravely. How does Jesus speak to the question, the, the third one of those three, does my life matter? Today I'd love us to just reflect a little bit on how you and I find purpose in a world that often experiences purposelessness. Carl Jung, the um, thinker, said, the, the least of things with meaning is worth more in life than the greatest of things without it. We have a world that looks for particular just pleasures. Maybe the word we would use is hedonism and yet often just doesn't find any real satisfaction and longs for a more particular sense of meaning. How does Jesus speak into that felt need? 
Interestingly, to the first people that followed him, his sense of purpose simply came through phrases like this, come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. Jesus gathered people that had no sense of purpose and said, you will find purpose through my story. When you embrace and catch a hold of this thing, it will change you and give you a reason to live. First, simply, Jesus invites us to make his story our purpose. There's this suspicion that your story, my story, they aren't actually big enough to give us purpose. I don't know about you, I have a tendency to make myself a major character in this story, in this world. And, and I've noticed there's temptations as well to, to make my kids and my wife and, and people around me minor characters in my story that actually impact just where I'm going and what I'm doing. I just philosophized on this a little bit while I was on a way. I was watching my, younger, my youngest daughter, she's seven, driving a golf cart on a boat for the first time and I felt this immense sense of pride in her and I just started to ask, Why? Do I feel that pride in something as simple as she's good at driving a boat for a seven-year-old? I mean, no seven-year-old is very good, if I'm honest, but, but, but as far as seven-year-olds go, she did well, and I just started to wonder, oh, wow, is this another way in that this little girl plays a minor part in my grand story? Je Jesus seems to suggest that none of our stories are actually big enough for us to find purpose. We actually only find them in his grand, find purpose in his grand story, and he invites us incredibly into that. I sometimes wonder if you and I might, in a conversation with Jesus in another place, end up boldly sort of celebrating the fact that we chose him. And I wonder if there might be a little chuckle on his face as he says, you didn't choose me, pal. I, I chose you. There was no like imagination or investigation of the marketplace that led you to me. It was simply my voice to you, my call on you, but this is what Peter receives, this invitation to make his story our purpose. Peter, you'll no longer find it fishing for fish. You'll find it helping my story take over the world, come to life. But what I find most intriguing is how the medium through which Jesus suggests Peter will do that. The way, if you like, the heart, if you like, of how he will do that. Because that seems to me to be revolutionary, to different, to different to any other voices. I would suggest, number two, Jesus commands we live out this purpose with compassion as our medium. Compassion is this word I would love us to reclaim because I think we understate it. We talk about co compassion as sympathy. We think of compassion as something that we can do over the internet. And yet compassion, when we get to look at it, is robust and it is deep and it is challenging and it is hard. Jesus' first sort of declaration of what his way might look like was this. Love your enemies. Do good to them. Before we get anywhere else, isn't that hard enough and different enough? Because these people, these first listeners of his, they had lots and lots and lots of enemies. They had invading armies on their doorstep and living in amongst them. They had people that they felt were betraying them. They had all of the different cultures that had gathered around them that were stealing away their kids and their grandkids. Does that sound like some of the thoughts that we have at different points? This, this culture of theirs was falling apart, was disappearing off the planet. They had more enemies than they can count. And how do you just surrender to your enemies by saying, no, we're going to love you. We're not going to fight against you in the way that we might have before we're going to choose to love you. That in itself is almost an absurd request. It's beyond just look a particular way. It's, it's now feel 
something. He even goes on to say this, and this in itself is just a groundbreaking statement. You must be compassionate, just as your father is compassionate. Now, one of the things we miss sometimes is just how political Jesus was. And I I say politics in its true sense of having an opinions on just the way that things are supposed to operate. Jesus says, be compassionate just as your father is compassionate. This was something that came from the Old Testament. But there was something else very similar that came from the Old Testament or very phrased very similarly. They were also told, be holy as God is holy. Be holy as God is holy and be compassionate as God is compassionate. It's what might be, come to be called the imitatio Dei. Maybe you've heard the phrase imago Dei, the image of God. This is imitatio Dei, the, the image, uh, the, the, the copying of God. There was be holy as God is holy and then there was be compassionate as God is compassionate. Imitatio Dei carried a tension between be holy as God is holy and be compassionate as God is compassionate. It was this tension between two things that at times seem almost to contradict each other. How do you be holy, which is to be separate, to be pure, and how do you be compassionate, which as we'll see in a little while is to be close to bees, to bring yourself down onto the same level, to hold close somebody. How do you do both of those things? I just read a book by a guy called Adam Grant that investigates just different ways that you might learn to think. And one of his challenges is we tend to think things are exclusive even when they're not. He frames this around the language of the Yankees and the Red Sox. He would suggest you can cheer for the Yankees while also cheering for the Red Sox. Maybe there's hope for me with your beloved Avs. Maybe I'll come to embrace the Avs and take them as one of my own. But this this language, this tension there is reflective of the tension that we just talked about. Imitatio Dei carries this tension between be holy as God is holy and be compassionate as God is compassionate. And and every single one of the political thinkers of this time, the Jewish thinkers, the the teachers of the law, they said, no, we're going to focus on holy as God is holy. We're going to be pure as God is pure. And how do you do purity? Well, you need a list of people. You need to know who's not pure and who's at the bottom of the list. You need to know who's an outsider who doesn't belong. And the people that didn't belong became characterized around certain social groups. Fishermen didn't belong. Shepherds didn't belong. Women often didn't belong. Tax collectors didn't belong. There was a long list of people that didn't belong that found their selves onto the the impure end of the list. And, And how do you stay pure? Well, you avoid those people. You build a list of who fits and a list of who doesn't. And you spend all of your time with the people that fit and none of the time with the people that don't. And that's how you're holy as God is holy in a first century mindset. And Jesus walks into the scene and says, be compassionate as God is compassionate. And there's almost a collective gasp and a collective holding of breath perhaps as people say, Jesus, don't you realize we don't talk about the compassionate thing anymore. We talk about the holiness thing. We've kind of put the compassionate thing aside because how do you get to do both of those things? And yet Jesus says, no, be compassionate. And when we look back into the Old Testament and capture just what compassion means in Jesus' language, it perhaps will break our hearts when we think about how we treat those that are marginalized and outside. In Jeremiah 31, were told is not Ephraim my dear son the child in whom I delight though I often speak against him I still remember him therefore 
my heart yearns for him. I have great compassion for him, declares the Lord. When the Old Testament picks this word compassion, do you know what it talks about it as? It says it's like the feeling that a mother has for a child in her womb. It is the wombness of God. It is compassion beyond any of us can experience outside of that particular feeling. The closest it gets to guys is honestly, seriously, this, the feeling of I really have to go to the bathroom. That's as close as it can get language-wise. It talks about the bowels of a man, but it talks about the womb of a woman. And so when Isaiah talks about God's love for his people, he says this, can a mother forget the child at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born. It says, can a woman ever get to a point where she doesn't feel there something for the child that she has given birth to? Jesus speaks to his followers and says, this is how you live out my way. Be compassionate as God is compassionate. Jesus chooses to emphasize compassion and not holiness. Now, does that mean Jesus wasn't holy? No. Does it mean that holiness isn't important? No. But it does mean that in this culture that was constantly emphasizing purity, constantly emphasizing what it was to separate yourself from people, Jesus says, I want you to do the opposite. I want you to pick that feeling of this is like a mother's feeling for a child that they have birthed. When he's sort of challenged on this, he even doubles down on it through story. We're told that a teacher, an expert in the law, wants to test Jesus, so, so asks him about eternal life, how he might inherit it. And we'll go quick through this, but Jesus says to him, you are to love God and to love your neighbor, these two big staples of the law. But this man wants to limit that. He wants to say, how, how small can I make the term neighbor? And in response, Jesus tells him this story that's sometimes known as the greatest short story ever told about a man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, this way that he follows. This way was known as the way of blood. It was this journey from Jerusalem, which is high up and is full of water and beautiful sort of like springs, all these different things, this access to water at least. And then there's this descent downhill towards Jericho where you, you drop three and a half thousand feet in, in a few miles and this way was so notorious it became known as the way of blood. When Jesus begins a story with, with a road from Jerusalem to Jericho, there's a, there's a moment of a first century audience of like, I know where you're going with this. I know this is going to be a problem. This is going to end badly. For those of you who like to climb, it's like Pike's Peak in reverse, actually. It goes from a place that has vegetation and, and trees to a place that just doesn't, but it's flipped on its head, but about the same distance and about the same climb. It's this place, this road that was known as treacherous. And so for a first century audience, when they hear he was attacked by robbers, the answer was, well, of course, if you're going to walk that road, you're going to be attacked by robbers. Those things are going to happen. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. He may as well be dead. Even if he comes to, he's in the middle of a desert. He has no access to anything. He's in a place where life doesn't exist. And then fortunately, some characters come into the story. A priest happened to be going down the same road. Jesus now apparently believes in chance. This priest enters the story. Someone who might be a hero in the story. But this priest sees the man and pass on the other side. Something that requires intention 
right? Have you ever been on one of those mountain roads and you know that you actually have to consciously get off the path? It's not like you can accidentally skip past someone. You actually have to ignore them on purpose. And that's what this priest does. And so too, another religious character, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him passed by on the other side of the road, a Levite, someone else who might be going to the temple to perform some duty, he passes by too. Both of these people are people that could be going to do something important. And if they touch a dead person, if they come across a corpse, their purity will be affected. This is a purity question. I can no longer serve in the way that I wanted to serve. What happens if that happens? What if I can't do what God has told me I'm supposed to be doing? And so they leave this man on the side of the road because we are pure as God is pure. We are holy as God is holy. We are different. We are set apart. And we don't go there. We don't mess with those people. They are not on the purity list. And then a third character enters the story. In in Jewish tradition, this was supposed to be a specific person. It was supposed to be an everyday Israelite who could come and be the hero of the story. But Jesus is more provocative than that. So in Jesus' story, it's not an everyday Israelite. In Jesus' story, it's the enemy. It's a Samaritan, a group of people of whom Jewish people prayed, God at the resurrection, we pray there are no Samaritans there, and they've returned the favor. This is enemy, this is hatred, these are people that are on the unpure end of the list. And this man, he comes into the story, but as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him, he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. The language of he took pity on him is the thing we're talking about. He was moved there as a mother is moved for her child. He was moved to act. What's scary about this passage I would suggest is this. Do the priest and the Levite think they are doing the wrong thing? Do they think that they're doing the wrong thing? Do they just say, you know, I'm just not feeling religious observance today. I'm just going to skip it. And I know really in God's economy, God's world, I should be caring for this injured person, but I'm I'm just going to let it go. I'm just going to do something different. I'm going to go against what God would have me to do today. No, they think they're doing the right thing. The, the, The horror of this passage is revealed in their belief they are acting as God would have them to act. When they leave the man to die, they think, I am doing well. God is pleased with me because I am being holy as God is holy. I am being pure as God is pure. The Samaritan, the unpure one, comes alongside and he's the one that shows compassion. He's the one that gets down on his knees on the roadside and lifts a man out of the dust. So when Jesus says, be compassionate as God is compassionate, he's saying when there's a question of holiness versus versus compassion, when there's a question of do I get down on my knees in the roadside, you get down on your knees in the roadside. You don't walk past. 
And I remember watching my own mother who has all of her beautiful quirky views of different things and the way that the world works. I watched her at a party for my sister where a a local gang turned up and started causing problems and, and then the police arrived and this young man was beaten. This young man who had caused trouble at the party, who had caused a bunch of problems for our family and I watched as my mother climbed into the police van with him and took this piece of cloth and mopped the blood from his brow. This sister, this guy that had ruined the evening and I watched as my mom got down on her knees and I watched in practice, no, you be compassionate as God is compassionate and if there's ever a question of will this defile you, will this make you impure, no, you pick compassion every single time. Paul phrases it, for Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view, though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. This is Paul talking about what it is to live for those who are on the roadside. And he references this beautiful twist because really somewhere at the heart of Jesus' story, there's this idea. You were once the person on the side of the road. You were once the helpless victim lying there and Jesus stopped for you and for me. Jesus, the God of the story, is the one who got down on his knees on the roadside, who didn't say, I'm going to be holy and separate and pure, who said, I'm going to show compassion and get down on my knees amongst the people that need it the most. And he says to us, now you, you get to do the same. Be compassionate as God is compassionate. Be moved from that place. Jesus commands the purpose for us is his story, but the way we live that out, the way we live out his purpose is with compassion as this medium. We live it out with compassion as our medium. When we're invited into holiness, be holy as God is holy, if that becomes about purity, if that becomes about separating ourselves, then no, we've missed what Jesus would have us to do. And isn't though that tempting? Isn't it tempting? I read a story the other day about a couple, young couple in their 20s who stopped by the side of the road to help someone and, and he ended up dead from the confrontation. It was a scam, a ruse, and he fell for it. And, and isn't the part of us that says, why would I get down on my knees when I may be the one that ends up dead? And yet Jesus' invitation to us to live fiercely with purpose for him is to say, no, I'm going to pick compassion and I'm going to be compassionate as God is compassionate. I'm going to find those on the roadside and I'm going to lift them up because that was done for me. But something wonderful that I, I think Jesus invites us to beyond that. I love that Jesus invites us into his story and recognizes that you are invited, yes, to be compassionate, yes, to be part of a whole, but he made you as he made you. And somewhere there's this invitation not just to be moved with compassion for those on the roadside, but to be moved by the things that move you. Somewhere there is something that you are made for and deeply passionate about. Jesus allows this individual calling to, to be revealed within his story. It's the reason that he can call his followers and know something about them and how they might serve. In his picture in Isaiah of what a new world might look like, there's all of these beautiful images of never again will there be an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not live out his years. The one who dies at a hundred will 
will be thought a mere child. The one who fails to reach a hundred will be considered accursed. They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. No longer will they build houses and others live in them or plant and others eat. It's a picture of what a new world might look like. And there's so many things within that that we might look at and say, that, that is what I'm passionate about. I am passionate about the billion people that don't have enough to eat. I am passionate about those that don't have enough water. I am passionate about those that don't know why they are here or why they exist. I'm passionate about the kids that sit in school systems whose parents aren't interested in them. I'm passionate about those that just are missing life. I'm passionate about where I can get down on my knees on the roadside and lift others up. There is something in you that you are made to do. And if South is to become the community, I long for it to be, and I think that you long for it to be too. This is not a place for consumers. This isn't a place for us to sit and say, I get to observe and I get to watch. This is a place for us to say, this, this is what moves me in this world. There is something in you that God can stir and God can shape and you can find your place. Martin Luther King, and we're going to close pretty quick, but Martin Luther King said this, on the one hand, we are called to play the good Samaritan on life's roadside. We're called to be moved, but that will only be an initial act. One day we must come to see that the whole Jericho road must be transformed so that men and women will not be constantly beaten and robbed as they make their journey on life's highway. True compassion is more than flinging a coin to a beggar. It's not haphazard and superficial. It comes to see that an edifice which produces beggars needs restructuring. It seems his invite is this. It's to care for the person on the side of the road that you come across, but then say, God, how are you calling me to fix that road? And before there was government programs, before there were all of those different things we might debate politically, there was only the church. And we have hospitals because of the church. And we have social programs because of the church. And we have schools because of the church. And none of those things existed before the church of Jesus. That's just a historical reality. We have created those things. And we get to pour our hearts out for this road that it might be fixed and mended so that people aren't consistently beaten on the side of the road. Frederick Beekner, one of my favorite authors ever, says this, the place God calls you is the place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. And this world is so hungry. So hungry for people that are willing to pour themselves out for it. So hungry for people to whom Jesus has said, no, I am your purpose and I am your belonging and I am your identity and now go care for the person on the side of the road. The question for you and I is simply this, will I allow myself to be moved and what, what is it that moves me? What is the thing that I can't not fix? What is the thing that I have to be involved in? Have I just sat on the sidelines and allowed it to be? What is the thing? Somewhere this invitation is to make this story your purpose and you will find your purpose in his story. There's this general calling, this great story, and yet your individualness, my individualness matters. You have something to do. The writer William McNamara said, I stake the future on the few humble and hearty lovers who seek God passionately in the marvelous, messy world of redeemed and related realities that lie in front of our noses. 
seems his invitation, or his suggestion is we need to, to love God deeply and then passionately immerse ourselves in what is around us. If you want to change the world, if you want to address the crisis, tell them a better story and use words if you like. Let's pray. If God is working in your life through this ministry, join us in reaching others by partnering with us. You can give online at southfellowship.org give or on the South Fellowship Church app. Thanks again for listening and have a great rest of your day.